Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to tell the stories of current and returned Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to connect with me over on Instagram at My Peace Corps Story, on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story, and as always, over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com. If you've been enjoying the show, uh, Go on over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and leave a review for the show. Five-star reviews are extremely appreciated, but more than anything, I want to know what you think so I can better serve my audience. And it's been a few weeks since I got a new review, so I actually want to hear from you guys. I hear that people are listening to the show and enjoying the show, because um, that's what I, I do this. I don't... Uh, well, actually, I do some of it for my my own joy because I do love talking to people about their service and helping me reminisce but I also do this as a service to the community of those interested in Peace Corps currently serving in Peace Corps and return Peace Corps volunteers so let me know what you think Speaking of those returned Peace Corps volunteers, uh, this past weekend I sat down with Corey Jacobson to talk about his service in Azerbaijan, a country that I knew absolutely nothing about uh, before the interview and we shed and he sheds a little bit of light on uh, his country of service uh, some of the geopolitical issues history climate geography food uh, all sorts of stuff as volunteers love talking about their countries of service so I think you guys will enjoy without further ado this is this is this is this is my my peace course peace course my peace course my peace course story 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 uh, my name is Corey Jacobson, and this is my Peace Corps story. Hey, Corey, how are you doing? Doing pretty well, Tyler. How are you doing? Doing well, and excited to talk to you a little bit about your country, Azerbaijan, which as of uh, 30 minutes ago, I knew nothing about, and then <laughs> uh, headed to to Wikipedia to do some some searching and reading up, and it is definitely an interesting place. So I'm uh, excited to learn a little bit more about it from someone who lived there and experienced the culture rather than just reading uh, <laughs> passages on Wikipedia. Of course. And uh, you're not alone. I mean, the, when I got when I opened that Peace Corps packet and I found out that I was going to Azerbaijan, I was honestly pretty clueless about where I was going to be living for the next two and a half years. But uh, I was excited about it and, and uh, glad that I actually uh, went through with it and got to got to experience the culture in the country for for that amount of time during my service. Mm-hmm. And when you were applying to Peace Corps, what what was your, I guess, reason for applying for Peace Corps? How, how did you end up hearing about Peace Corps? Did Peace Corps play into sort of a larger future for yourself? Or what was the driving force for you applying uh, to Peace Corps? Well, I, I graduated from college and um, I had a good buddy who had been discussing wanting to, to sign up for the Peace Corps um, for quite some time before we graduated. And we were going to do it together. We were going to go through it together because I didn't really have a whole lot. I didn't have any leads on uh, on a career. I didn't necessarily. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to travel a little bit. Um, but I didn't really know how to go about doing it. So the Peace Corps seemed like a, you know, like a great experience to get some of that international uh, travel experience. So 
we went through the first process together and then he decided to bow out and I liked the way it sounded. So, so I kept, uh, I kept going through the process and, and was eventually selected and I never really looked back after that. Mm-hmm. And you served uh, about the same time that I served. So I assume that you were also part of the old process of general application and see where they place you. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I wanted to go to, uh, I wanted to go to South America initially. Um, and they came back and said, that's great. Um, thanks for your suggestion. We're going to send you to Morocco. I was like, okay. <laughs> so that's another direction, but that's fine. Um, and then something, I'm not entirely sure what happened, but right during the, during the final stages of acceptance, they, they shut down Morocco and I believe it was Jordan. Um, mm-hmm. I think it had to do with the Libya conflict in 2012. Um, so they kind of scrambled, and I got the Azerbaijan acceptance letter, I want to say about a month before I was supposed to depart. So um, happy about it. Obviously, it turned out really well for me, but uh, but it was, you know, it was a little hectic there for a little while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as I've been interviewing volunteers, uh that scenario comes up more and more, which it, it now just leads me to believe that it is not uh, uncommon. Uh, it's not uncommon. uncommon. Yeah. How about you? Were you uh, were you always kind of scheduled to do Burkina Faso and uh, Western Africa? Well, I was actually given a, a choice because I was doing Masters International, and they gave me a little bit more flexibility. So they gave me two different regions: either I could do the Pacific Islands or I could do West Africa. And for me, it, it, it came down to timing that uh, Pacific Islands were going to leave a little bit later than I wanted since I was going to come back and wrap up grad school. So I went with West Africa. And oddly enough, when I was looking at the map of West Africa, did not even pay attention to Burkina Faso. I just assumed that I would be on one of the coastal countries, uh, but sure. I was wrong. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No sea breeze for you, huh? No, and and looking at where you served in Azerbaijan, I mean, it looks like you got the nice uh, was it Caspian Sea there, uh, but you were you were far from the Caspian. Far, I was I was as close, basically as close to the border of Georgia and Armenia as you could get. Um, I was yeah, the, pretty much the furthest region from the capital, uh, which made bus rides an absolute blast. You could imagine every mm-hmm. time we had to get to the. Every time we had to get to the capital for conferences, and meetings, and the like. So, um, so I was I was far from I was far from the, the Caspian Sea, uh, but I was close to the village I lived in. Was kind of nestled between uh, the Lesser Caucasus mountain range and the largest river in the country, the Kure. Um, so it was pretty cool. I got to go hang out on the river a lot, do a lot of hiking in the mountains. So I didn't necessarily miss the coast or the big city. And yeah, you referenced that you were near the river and the, your village or where you lived actually has a, a spot in, in Wikipedia. And one of the, the things that it says there that the town was actually relocated, uh, because of plans to dam that river. So I guess when you lived right. there, wasn't the original historic village. Uh, do you, do yes. you know when about that was moved? I mean, was this something in the eighties? No, I believe it was, I believe it was much earlier than that. Um, because you can go and see the old section of the, of the village. You can walk right up to it. There's, there's still some, some houses and some buildings there, but they're pretty, 
you know, they're old, they're condemned looking buildings. So um, I, I would say it was probably maybe a hundred years ago. They moved. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was longer than, than 30 years ago, but I couldn't okay. tell you exactly when. Okay. And what exactly were you doing there as a Peace Corps volunteer? So I was a TEFL volunteer. So I taught English uh, as my primary sector. Um, but I would say that the majority of the time I spent doing extracurriculars outside the classroom, I uh, focused uh, a lot on youth development. So I conducted some uh, conversation clubs a few times a week. I uh, orchestrated the the Augustafa region softball team, ultimate frisbee team, and I had a basketball club. Um, so I tried to spend as much time outside trying to converse with the with my students rather than in the classroom with a face in the book. Thought that'd be a little bit more, a little more hands on, a little more interactive for, for the students. Mm-hmm. And so what? I spent the, oh, sorry, I was say I spent the uh, pretty much the bare minimum of time that was necessary to be in the classroom, in the classroom, and the rest of my time outside teaching. Mm-hmm. And what were some of the secondary projects that you were doing outside and teaching? So I worked with an NGO here based in Washington State, I believe, Vancouver, called Courts for Kids. And uh, they sent a group of Americans, along with some equipment, to build a basketball court. So I built the first uh, basketball court in my village. Um, that was the last project that I did. Uh, it was also the most strenuous and difficult project that I did, but it was, it was great to have the community contribution along with the Americans kind of, you know, working together, working in concert to, to construct something that's, that's still there this day, five years later and still being used. Um, so that was, that was probably the most impactful project i think that i i would say that i accomplished i did um worked on a couple of other grants i uh, wrote a spa grant uh small projects assistance i think it stands for um for an english resource room so we purchased this is basically just to to hold my conversation clubs in after after hours um Mm -hmm. so you know i bought some technology for the class a projector laptop um, a whole bunch of books and things like that and and some interactive um, utensils for learning that, that uh, my village just didn't have didn't have those resources before so I think that was that was very beneficial and I still get uh, videos from all of my classrooms uh, like Halloween parties and Christmas parties they still host even though they don't celebrate Halloween or Christmas in <laughs> in Azerbaijan they still uh, they still send me videos of the songs that I taught them and, and and they always have a party for Halloween and dress up and make masks and stuff. So it's pretty cool to see five years later that they're still using that, that equipment and still, you know, the practices that I, that I showed have, have lived on. So it's kind of cool. Oh yeah. That's, that's definitely cool. Cause often, yeah. you know, Peace Corps volunteers, they do these projects and then they leave and you always wonder, you know, did did this thing die the second that I that I that I left my community? Uh, but it's nice to know that some of the work that you did is still ongoing. Absolutely, absolutely, and that is the great fear that that the impacts that you had are, you know, cease to exist five years, ten years on, and, and to know that they they are still there is so is great. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. 
And what are some of your favorite memories uh, from your time in Azerbaijan? There are a few things that come to mind. Um, I loved, absolutely loved Azerbaijani weddings. I was invited to probably 50 or 60 during my service. Uh, I would say that I probably attended 30 and maybe seven or eight different regions. And Azerbaijani weddings, there's really only one way to describe them. Um, they're just, they're as bizarre as they are amazing. It's unbelievable entertainment to go to an Azerbaijani wedding. And there's two different kinds of, of Azerbaijani weddings. There's the palace wedding, which typically happens in a city setting. Mm-hmm. And then there's a village wedding. And the village weddings are just an absolute riot. It's a free-for-all. Um, there's just copious amounts of, of food and wine and vodka since it's a um, this, the Soviet era influence. Um, Azerbaijan is a Muslim country, but the, because of the Soviet influence, the vodka is very prevalent. And the music plays for eight, nine hours. Everyone dances. Everyone eats. There's at a village wedding, there is typically a fight. You're gonna you're gonna see one fight, <laughs> uh, and you got you got to be prepared for it. You got to be on your toes, head on a swivel if you're a uh, if you're at an Azerbaijani village wedding. But it, it's an unbelievable event. Um, and then the the palace weddings are a little bit more of a production. Um, they have all these gaudy neon lights all over the place. Um, elaborate decor, the same exact food. I think there's only one menu for an Azerbaijani wedding. So no matter what wedding you go to, it's basically going to be the exact same lineup, same spread. Um, you might have some higher end, some higher end drink options, but that's about it. And still a free for all. You're not going to necessarily see a fight, uh, which is probably, probably good, but you're, <laughs> you're going to spend a little bit more money at a, at a palace wedding. It's going to be a little bit more upscale. So we always enjoyed the village weddings with a tent in the backyard and you could, you know, just hang out in the mud. Mm-hmm. I would say that's, that was, those memories are, are some of my favorite memories. Um, I was also very fortunate to live in a village that had a lot of um, territory, I guess, to explore outside. I here in the U S I, I like to hang out outside most of the time. So I was, excited to hear there's going to be lots of options for hiking and fishing and camping uh, where I moved to in, in Grog Kessiman, my village. So I spent a great deal of time outdoors with a lot of the, a lot of my Azerbaijan friends camping and, and fishing. And one, one story that comes to mind uh, was the first time I was taught to teach or first time I was taught to fish the, the Azeri way. Um, which is to wade into the river uh, with a very long net that spanned almost the entire width of the river and to kind of push upstream and just collect as many fish as you possibly could. Mm -hmm. And what I wasn't told was that they do it without shoes um, on very sharp rocks, very sharp. So I had to help uh, one of my, my friends with the, with one side of the net while the other person kind of swam in the middle and then one person on the other side. So there's three of us. And I was wading in on, on one side of the, the bank of the river and my feet were, I mean, I could feel them like bleeding. It was bad news. Mm. So I'm like hobbling around 
and they're yelling at me, Corey, you need to keep up. We're, we're losing these fish. They're, they're flying out of the net. And I, I'm panicking. I'm like, hey, you guys, I cannot keep up. Like I am, I'm in a great deal of pain here. So I, I bail. I, I like, I dropped the net. I watched every single fish that we had collected, uh, just swim free, dip back down the river. And, uh, I, I mean, I was absolutely berated for, for about 45 minutes because I'd, I'd ruined the catch of the day. Um, but my, my buddies were, were understanding and we laughed about it for, for a really long time afterwards. And I still do. I still get messages from those guys talking about those, all of our, uh, interesting fishing and camping adventure stuff mm-hmm. yeah your uh your um, american feet used to being in shoes uh yes. not not as calloused as theirs that's that's a very eloquent way to put it and that's true that's absolutely true one of the reasons i love having these conversations with return peace Corps volunteers is seeing the parallels and also remembering my service and I had those weddings that I absolutely enjoyed. Never had any fights. Uh, no? Which, yeah, which I guess is good. Uh, That's uh, probably good. Yeah. Uh, during some of the uh, sort of religious ceremonies and, and holidays, there were a, a few, but never during any weddings. And then, yeah, I I also had uh, the pleasure of going out and exploring uh, the wilderness around my community and, and going sometimes alone and sometimes with other people. So it's, uh, it's always nice to, to hear that other volunteers are, are doing the same thing and just not, just not hanging out in village. The village is great, but I love getting out into the, the nature as well. Absolutely. What was the geography like where in uh, Burkina Faso where you, where you served? So I served in the Southwest, which was kind of, uh, I would call it arid tropical. So it did have a dry season where everything dried out and it got pretty dusty for about four or five months. And then the rest was rainy season, uh, which at the peak of rainy season, it was pretty lush. It definitely, oh, yeah. yeah, it was beautiful and green and we had rice paddies uh, and uh, sort of swampy fields. And I would go out to the river and uh, watch hippos from a questionably safe distance. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And do things like that, but it was a it was a fun place to explore. Oh yeah, that's great. And so you've shared some of your your favorite memories, even if uh, one of your favorite memories is having uh, your feet <laughs> sliced and diced on on, on sharp rocks. Uh, but I can definitely Absolutely. see how that is a a favorite memory. What were some of your least favorite memories, or things you struggled with as a volunteer? There there were a couple. Um, I would say initially, um, what was, a, was very difficult for me was the isolation. Um, the village I lived in, no one spoke English. So I had to learn Azerbaijani quickly. And, um, the closest volunteer to me was, uh, my site mate who lived in the actual city center of the region for the capital of, of Oxtapa, which is probably... It's about 10 miles or so away, but it would take, you know, anywhere from 45 minutes to three hours, it seemed like, on mm-hmm. you know, how long we're going to wait for a bus and stuff like that. So, um, so we were, I was isolated and, you know, I, I lived in a very rural, remote village. Uh, I didn't have running water, didn't have plumbing. Um, electricity was scarce. You know, I probably have electricity for four or five hours a day. So uh, I didn't have internet for the majority of my service. So initially that I would say it was difficult to, you know, the physical challenges you get over in a couple 
success not that big of a deal. You know, learning how to bathe with a bucket and, and a sponge is, is not that big of a deal. But just uh, trying to meet people, trying to, you know, you can't really identify with anybody if you can't speak their language immediately. So it, it was difficult for, for my first couple of months to really try and grab my bearings. And I would say that was my very first challenge. Um, other than that, the, I would say probably the low light of my service was about three weeks before I was going to depart back from the U.S., my uh, host mother that I, that I initially lived with for the first four months of my service uh, was diagnosed with cancer. Um, so I, I got to go and visit her a few times in, in the hospital in Baku before I left, which is the capital of Azerbaijan. And it kind of just brought into perspective the a lot of the differences that you kind of take for granted here in the States, but in a developing country, you know, things like healthcare, uh, preventative treatments, you know, even such things like routine random checkups, you might go to the doctor, you know, what medicine is available, things like that. It just, it's just different in a developing nation and, and people just don't live as long. And so I, I witnessed a lot of, you know, she was not the only, um, unfortunately, the only death that I, that I saw while I was there. Mm-hmm. So that was, so that was difficult. I thought it was, I mean, I went to more funerals there in two years than I've ever been to here in the States, uh, which was difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It feels that like my life in the United States, that death isn't a thing that I really think about ever. Uh, but it was kind of, uh, ever more present, uh, during my service, it just, you know, it, it was, the fear was really there and sort of the recognition that, uh, there were diseases and as you said, not access to healthcare and, and various things that you faced mortality, uh, a lot more. Exactly. I mean, it's even the, just driving on the road. It, it was a, it's a yeah. wild west out there. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, there were more people I think that died from, from drinking and driving accidents than anything else. I mean, it was, it was a weekly occurrence in a mm-hmm. village of, 1,500 to 2,000 people. So, yeah, definitely, definitely mortality was definitely a more present thought for sure than it is here. And that was difficult to grasp initially. It never really got easier, but. No, which is probably a good thing. (laughs) Probably, in hindsight, yeah, definitely. And is there anything uh, you miss about your, your Peace Corps service? I would say that I, I missed I missed the adventure. I miss uh, not knowing what uh, what my day was gonna was gonna be composed of. I something every single day happened in Azerbaijan that completely blew me away. It never changed for two two and a half years. Something happened every single day that I just didn't still couldn't comprehend. And so you live in a place for two and a half years and you still don't really completely understand all like the subtle nuances and you know the intricacies of of the cultural norms that it it's just something that uh that i'll always cherish and definitely something that i miss i'd say that my life here in the states is a little bit more scheduled um it's a little more organized and uh i definitely do miss that that kind of adventure waking up and really not knowing what what was going to happen it was really great experience Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, 
uh, opening your eyes and just sort of pausing for a second and thinking, hmm, what do I want to do today? Not what do I have to do today? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Or what do I get to? What am I going to be forced to experience on, you know, or be surprised? <laughs> at? Yeah. So Yeah. Which I, I absolutely love. I love that, that comfort zone, you know, leaving the comfort zone and every single day was, was something new. So it was, uh, it was definitely an experience to remember. How about you? I would same. say very much the the same of the the exploration side of it. That every day I would I would take the first hour or two of my day for myself, uh, having my nice morning routine and breakfast and everything. But from then therefore, it, I kind of forced myself to go out in my village to explore, walk down little streets that I'd never had before. I always had a, a camera with me, uh, which made a introductions ever more. Uh, easier because people would always want a, a photo and take photos of them and, and just striking up conversations. But yet just having that openness with my day that really the only thing I had to do for the day was look for ways to make things a little better. And sometimes that was just just a conversation and that, that, that was enough. And it was kind of nice to have like that was my goal for the day. Make things a little better. Absolutely. That's a great goal. Mm-hmm. So what did uh, what did breakfast look like in your uh, village? Well, I was a lucky volunteer. So if there's any volunteers uh, who are listening who served in Burkina Faso, I was uh, am- among a minority because I lived in the Southwest. I had access to fruits and veggies, uh, tons of eggs and meat that some of my fellow volunteers in the North definitely did not have. Uh, oh, so- really? Yeah, uh, I had a, a fellow volunteer who, uh, he we we t- would text back and forth because we got free texting uh, in in Burkina amongst volunteers, and he said one day that the only thing he had in his village for the past week were onions. That's the only thing that they could purchase. Uh, yeah, so I I lived a very different life, but usually I would do omelets in the morning. I went through about thirty eggs uh, a week. Uh, eating a lot of eggs for protein. So it'd be like saute onions and fresh spinach, uh, maybe some peppers, do it with nice, nice egg omelet, a little bit of uh, a French baguette on the side, you know, as a remnant of being a uh, colonial, French colonial country. But yeah, breakfast was pretty nice for me. And then I would head to my friend's place who owned a a little coffee shop and, and drink coffee there. So that was my my morning. How about you? What did you have a a traditional breakfast? Because mine definitely wasn't traditional. Mine was still mine was very American upscale. Right, right. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, egg omelet every single morning. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the first three months of my service, I lived with a host family, and I it was more traditional Azerbaijan fare. Uh, be fresh bread, cheese, maybe a hard boiled egg, usually just like cheese, honey, jam. Uh, and bread, and then a whole a lot of tea, a lot mm-hmm. of tea. No one really, no one drinks coffee, and uh, and as well, it's all chai. Mm-hmm. Um, but is it a strong tea? It's like I mean, it's it's, a... it's kind of like a uh, it's kind of just like black tea. Okay, so it, it's not it's not really strong. It's it, when I was in Turkey or any of those other Caucasus nations, I guess you can say it's it's all it's all pretty comparable. That okay. just kind of the the loose leaf tea because it's yeah they, they they steep it with the actual tea leaves in it and so you uh, you drink you get to the bottom of it and you get a nice tea leaf 
sticking out of your teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah. is this with? Do they have? Do they add sugar to it? Milk or is it just plain black tea? No, they'll they'll do sugar. They'll do sugar cubes, and you put the cube in your mouth, and then you drink the tea. <laughs> so so they don't actually add the sugar to the tea. Um, these are all things you got to learn. You got to come prepared. Interesting. You can't, you can't be putting the cube in your cup of tea and get shunned. So yeah, that makes that doesn't make any sense, right? Nope, nope, not at all. So, <laughs> but it was fun. It was good. I I mean, I had probably seven or eight glasses a day because they'd have it in the morning and they'd have it for you know four or five times until until the the last cup which would usually come right right after dinner mm-hmm. so it was an important social event you know more than anything else mm-hmm. but uh as soon as i moved out of my so i yeah so the last whatever it was probably um year and a half or so of my service i lived by myself and my traditional food kind of just went out the window. I mean, I still, I'd make eggs and stuff. I had a full garden. Azerbaijan has um, incredible amounts of, of fruits and vegetables. So I moved into a little, a little place that had, I mean, I had pomegranate trees, I had plum trees, apple trees, grapevines, um, all kinds of stuff, persimmons, quince, like a whole bunch of different what I would consider exotics and stuff in my era, uh, fruit. And I was able to grow, uh, my first year I was able to grow some, some tomatoes and cucumbers and cabbage. And then my second year, uh, everything died except the cabbage. So I just had like 40 heads of cabbage. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> it was terrible. The only one I actually really didn't want, I wanted the cucumbers and the tomatoes and they didn't make it, but, so I just did a lot of a lot of fruit and vegetables. There's not a lot of protein in Azerbaijan. It's protein's expensive, so you know I probably ate meat maybe three times a week. Mm-hmm. I would say probably half of that was like a, a Russian style kabasa, mm-hmm. so glorified bologna, mm-hmm. um, which actually wasn't too bad. A little hot sauce, make the best of it. Yeah, uh, yeah. And the the access to to meat now was that because you were more or less adopting their lifestyle and their diet that they didn't eat much meat because I know that I would say my fellow villagers the people who lived in the community they didn't eat a lot of meat or the meat was a little bit more scarce but on my Peace Corps salary I had I, I felt like the richest person in the in the village to be to be, to <laughs> be honest. Yeah, uh, it was it was bizarre, uh, uh, it, but I I was able to have decent access to, uh, to meat. So was it more of a a choice for you, or if it was even expensive, prohibitively expensive as a volunteer? It, it was it was expensive as a volunteer. Um, food in general in Azerbaijan is is expensive. I read a this was a couple of years ago. This was um, probably in 2012. They did a study of of um, income to expenses ratios of countries around the world. Mm-hmm. And Azerbaijan spent uh, the majority, they spent the highest percentage of their income on food of any country in the world. And it was, I mean, it was something outrageous, like 40 something percent mm-hmm. of their income to, to food. And, and the large portion of that was protein. Um, not entirely sure why there was, 
my village was was a big farming village. I mean, there was I woke up every single morning to cows and sheep and like Cape Cape buffalo walking down the street. There's you know my neighbors had chickens and everything running around. I'm not entirely sure why uh, protein was expensive as it was, but um, it, it it was just expensive. So when during the summer we're a large fishing community in Broadcastman. Uh, so I ate a lot of fish probably, I'd say that was all the protein I got in the summer would be, would be from fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's, I mean, I probably ate beef maybe once a month and that was usually when I was over at dinner with someone's house, one of my counterpart's house or, or a student's house or something like that. I, I have, I have beef, but it was like special occasions. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess that, I mean, maybe it was just, uh, just me adopting the, you know, the, the fare of the of, of the village, mm-hmm. but it was, it was expensive as well. Yeah, and it's maybe not as convenient as uh, having access to protein in the United States. There's a, a lot more steps and butchering involved, and absolutely, absolutely. And the uh, it kind of blew my mind. It was the first time I'd had like an actual real chicken that wasn't you know, Tyson mm-hmm. brand or whatever you get here in the States that's pumped full of hormones. Uh, so chicken breasts are not that big. No. Legs. None of that. So it's just not, you know, the, the meat is, the meat is scarce on those guys. So it's mostly skin and bones. Um, so that could, that could play into, into it as well, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I could, I could talk about food forever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> me too, man. Uh, but is there uh, anything that you learned in Peace Corps that has stayed with you? Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, I think that I matured a lot while I was in the Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. The Peace Corps, my service really broadened my horizons to it, as far as like a, a geographical scope. I, I learned a lot about other cultures. I learned to be, you know, more tolerant and and um, more respectful and then just, just gain this, this insight into another culture as bizarre it might be in Azerbaijan. Uh, and, and just this interest that keeps growing that I, you know, I just, now I just want to learn about every place that I possibly can. I want to see every place that I possibly can. That sense of adventure, I, I can all attribute to, to my experience in the Peace Corps. And I'll never forget that. I would say more than anything, patience mm-hmm. and respect were were what I gained and, and what I what I brought back. How about you? Definitely that that curiosity. I I always had it to a degree, but it was definitely a curiosity that was mainly gleaned from from books uh, up until that point. And then when I was finally dropped in another culture and was able to explore uh, people and relationships and sit down with artists or farmers, musicians, uh, all all sorts of things like that, and and get to know more about their life that I gained uh, a a greater sense of curiosity, but around the things that were actually physically in front of me, uh, rather than being just words on a page and 
being a being an academic, uh, so transitioning some of my uh, academic curiosities into sort of the the real tangible world around me. That was one of the the biggest things that that I gained as a volunteer. Absolutely, that pragmatic kind mm-hmm. of experience. Yeah, yeah, invaluable, invaluable. Mm-hmm. And and one thing that I I always question for myself or that I struggle with uh, is you know I. I lived this life in Peace Corps that was, you know, kind of idyllic, that I that I really enjoyed. That as as we've already spoke about, that life of adventure and exploration, and experiencing other other cultures. Uh, have you been able to maintain a kind of that essence of of Peace Corps life now that you're back in the United States? Uh, busy with a, a a job and you know i guess by uh, you're you're married i don't know if you have kids but other other things of of that nature uh have you been able to maintain that that essence of peace corps i i would say that i have um when we travel um we we've stepped we're able to set a goal of doing one international trip every year since i moved here and we've we've stuck to it Mm-hmm. Um, I would say as I've gotten older that, uh, we've kind of migrated away from the Peace Corps-esque style of traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife put a pretty quick end to that. She, she nipped that right in the bud. She's like, boy, <laughs> we're not staying in hostels anymore. We can, you know, we can afford to stay in a hotel. We're going to do that. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to share a, a bunk room with, you know, eight or nine other travelers. So. I kind of moved away from that, but as far as the activities and things I do when I travel, I really like to immerse myself in, into the culture of the place that I'm in. So um, that has definitely stuck with me. I will stick to always trying the, the food of that particular country that I'm in. Um, no matter what, I'll try and I'll try and see any type of like festivities or you know, local activities and things like that. I like to try and stick to that, not necessarily do the attractive tourist things, mm-hmm. um, but really try and get, really try and experience the culture on a more intimate level. And I do think that I've, I've managed to do that probably not as well as I did um, six or seven years ago, but, but, but I'm trying. So mm-hmm. how about yourself? What about you when you're traveling? Well, definitely when I'm traveling, I'm, I'm, able to do it i i snap back into that peace corps mindset uh at, yeah with my my fiance uh, i don't get to stay in the cheapest place possible i do have the, the requirement yeah. that there must be air conditioning because uh, sure. we tend to tend to travel to very hot places so got to have air conditioning that's the the one stipulation and yeah i have no problem when i'm traveling internationally i always seek out all the food uh, especially street food, you know, find the like the oldest grandma on, on the street cooking up something yeah. that I don't know what it is, and be like, I'll take one of those and whatever else oh. you recommend. Like that's that's who I go to, the old lady on the street. Uh, so it's it's always easy when I'm when I'm traveling internationally, but I definitely struggle a lot more when I'm back in the United States. And I was just thinking about this last night of that hey, those people that are kind of peripheral in in your life that you interact with every day but it's a very passive interaction and for me it's the people that i see every day in my commute uh in washington dc uh, the security guards in the building that i work at 
uh, the same guy that checks me out at the grocery store every Sunday at like 6 a.m. because I go to the grocery store at 6 a.m. like a weirdo. <laughs> but like, but those people, like, I have no idea, like, their names, their right. like life story, their background, anything. But all those same people that I had in my life in Burkina Faso, I knew everything about them. Okay, you know, you took time to to interact with everybody, regardless of of your sort of status or relationship to them. Uh, so I kind of, I don't know, I miss that, and I've realized that I should probably do a better job of actually knowing the people that I interact with on a daily basis, as as weird as that is. Well, you know, you probably should, but I would say this. You are going to sound like a weirdo if at 6 a.m. and you're, the, you know, you're getting checked out at the grocery store and you're talking to the guy about his, his dreams and ambitions. It's, in the Peace Corps, things kind of moved a little bit slower, right? So you could, mm-hmm. you know, in these cultures, I think that that's kind of unilateral. And pretty much no matter where you go in the Peace Corps is that things are going to move a little bit slower than, than a developed country. And you have that time and it's, it's expected to... Mm-hmm to know the people around you, you know, on a more intimate level. It's just, it's the way life is there. Whereas it's not, it really isn't that way here. And that's, you know, it, that was definitely something that took me a long time to get used to. I, I smiled and waved and said hello to everybody every single day. And that's right, I, I came here, you know, back to the States. I moved to Seattle for four or five months where it's cold and gloomy and rainy. And, you know, you say, hey, hey, what's up to some stranger? And they just scoff at you and say, hey, man, it's freezing out here. I don't want to lift my head up. And <laughs> it's raining. You got an umbrella going. You know, it's just, it, it's different different interactions. And, um, yeah. So that was something that took me a while to be used to, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely the guy on the Metro bus or, or, or subway car that has too much eye contact and smiles yeah, at, stra- exactly. at, at, at strangers and like, what is wrong with him? Like, I, I'm not exactly. crazy. I'm not crazy. I'm not on drugs. I'm just friendly. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Different way to live for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I've enjoyed uh, talking with you uh, about Azerbaijan. Is there anything else we, we need to know? I, I know that you could probably spend hours talking about uh, the, culture the the climate uh the different foods the geopolitical issues uh i, I just started uh, dipping my toe into it before the interview and i was like wow this there's a lot of things going on over there especially given where it's situated with all these countries but is there anything else that we should know about uh azerbaijan uh in general or as it relates to your service I would say, and yeah, the geo, as far as like geopolitical issues go, I mean, that's a whole nother interview in itself. You can spend hours talking about the, that issue. Um, but I think that one of the most interesting things about Azerbaijan culturally that I think everyone should know is it's this very, it's unlike any place I've ever been where it's this incredibly unique blend of different cultures throughout time that is, that is, basically culminated to form what current Azerbaijan is today. They, at many given times throughout their history, were occupied by uh, the Persians. Uh, they were under the Ottoman control for a long time. Their their language and much, much of their culture is largely Turkic. Um, they were part of the Soviet Union. And there's just this strange 
culmination of all these cultures that have come together and you can see it in the food, you can see it in the architecture. Um, and it's, it's such an interesting place to go and visit. And I, I just encourage everyone, if you have the opportunity, do not skip out on, on Azerbaijan because it is a wildly bizarre and spectacular place. You can climb mountains, you can go hang out in the desert, you can see the Caspian Sea and you know, hang out on the beach um, all in one day, if you get a long day. Anyways, but, um, and the, the architecture in, in Baku is, um, you can see the old city, which is, they call it Cher Shahar, it's the, the inner city, is something like a thousand years old, 1200 years old. And then right next to it is a skyscraper composed entirely of glass that was built five <laughs> years ago. And it's a uh, Hilton, you know, wow. it, it's just a very unique place. And, and that culture is kind of spread all across every aspect of, uh, of life. And aspect. So I recommend it. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm adding it to my list and that's the, that's the, one of the difficulties of doing this podcast that I, I sit here and I listen about these countries from people who had amazing experiences. I'm like, well, now I need to go there as well. So my my travel list is uh, never ending. Uh, but that's not a bad thing. Great. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for, for spending some time with us. Uh, to close out the show, uh, do you have a favorite uh, quote or local saying that you would like to share? Yeah, I... I was thinking about this. Um, Azerbaijan is, is kind of famous for their proverbs. They love they love their proverbs. So, and every every region has their favorite proverb. And, and mine was "Ochkoku um, which means "grass grows on its roots." Um, is the direct translation, but basically just means you are who you are because of, of where you come from. Type of the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree type of situation. So. I actually liked it so much, I got it uh, tattooed on my arm. Uh, so me and uh, four or five of my other Peace Corps volunteer friends each got the tattoo of the Azerbaijani proverb that was famous in their region. So that was a nice little uh, souvenir I have. Mm-hmm. And did you get that uh, in Azerbaijan or after coming back? No, in Azerbaijan in a relatively shady uh, <laughs> tattoo parlor that we discovered. <laughs> so, no, you got to get the full experience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Corey, thank you for taking some time to share a little bit about Azerbaijan and your service. Uh, it has been a pleasure uh, just learning more about that region of the world. Now I feel that I've got more questions bubbling up that I, I need to, to research and, and figure out and maybe plan a trip. So if, uh, if I'm in that neck of the woods, uh, it, I will definitely hit you up. And uh, I'm also going to be traveling to uh, your current home state uh, here next month. So I might also have to hit you up uh, for some recommendations uh, in Maine as well. Absolutely. Let me know. All right. Will do. Uh, well, thank you very much, and I'll talk to you later. Great job. Thank you. 
And there you have it, another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the show on whatever platform you're listening to, be it iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Pocket Cast. Um, There's a ton of them out there. Be sure to subscribe so you get a brand new episode every single Tuesday when I release them. If you would like to come on the show and share your Peace Corps story, uh, please reach out. Uh, my list of uh, people in reserve is running very, very low. Uh, so I, I need people to interview to make this show happen. So if you have a story or if you have suggestions of people that I should reach out to, uh, maybe you know them or maybe you know of them and that they served in Peace Corps and they've got a really cool story or background in general, uh, let me know. Welcome to Suggestions. Uh, I'll go out and ask people if they want to share their story. Uh, I have no shame. Uh, So until next time, uh, just remember that every volunteer has a story. What's yours? What's yours?